0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: We always talk about external threats to a company. Insider threat is the reverse, so it's somebody that's already on the inside. So technically, could already have a privileged account. It can be, you know, divulging of proprietary information. It could be the compromising of or or the leaking of credentials.
0: So, Mike, you were reading an article about um, insider threat and um, insiders taking information with them out of the company. Can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Yeah. Uh Information Security Magazine recently did a piece on some uh surveys that were performed in Europe uh, where they took a sample of about 4000 people and asked them about their willingness to leak or sell corporate data or access. Um and there were some interesting points that came out of that that study. Of those surveyed, about 30% had purposely sent data outside of their organization at some point in time, and about 15% of those responding had taken business critical information with them upon exiting the business. So when you start looking at employee turnover, particularly if individuals that have privileged access, that have um, you know broad access inside of an organization that can take that type of information, um, that does become you know a significant concern. Uh, interestingly, about 60% of the people uh, that took that business critical information, so about seven, eight percent of responders um, had planned to use that information in their next job.
1: So how do you protect yourself against somebody who now doesn't work for the company and has absolutely no loyalty to that company when they leave? That's a whole nother side where, you know, the, the things that you need to do as a company is to make sure that you have a very concise and specific exit policy. When, a, when, a, when an individual leaves a company where, you know, access is removed immediately all access to proprietary information is removed. So I think that's a key as well.
0: So did they talk at all about the motivations of such people? I mean, what, what reasoning would they, would they give for why they did such a thing?
2: Of those that responded, about 14% of the people that were interviewed um, said that they would actually sell uh, their corporate logins to folks on the outside or sell that data for less than about $250 US, but about a little over 20% of the respondents simply didn't believe that data breaches really actually impacted their employer at all.
0: The impact isn't apparent to them. To them, it's not a data breach. You know, someone may ask them, hey, can I use your credentials after you've left the company to do something to the company, and they may feel, well, there's no impact to that. You know, what, what was I really working on that was so important? but there's more to it than that. That gives them potentially access to other systems from which someone can pivot through the company. It's a, it's an initial foothold they can use to attack the company further.
2: Reuters published an article uh, where they looked at 65 companies that had been affected uh, by a large uh, data breach um, that had you know significant consequences. And what they found uh, was that on average that there was a 1.8% drop in that company's um, market cap on a permanent basis. You know, when you start talking about large publicly held organizations, that can be a very, very large number, um, which can directly translate to people getting bonus checks um, and directly hurt people, you know, at an individual financial level.
1: That, that message that Mike's talking about, about getting, you know, them to understand, like, hey, look, you know, that ID that you're logging in with, you know, down in the, down in the factory floor, is an ID that, you know, if somebody else got a hold of, could potentially, you know, cause problems for us.
0: It reminds me of um, Brian Krebs, Krebs on Security. He's got, I think it's a the value of a hacked email account, and that's the sort of thing I would, I would show to one of those people and say, look, you may not think there's anything valuable in your email accounts. And by the way, I think most people do have something valuable, which is access to all their other accounts, which is you can get for the password reset. Right. To show them that there's something more to it than what they think of their, their personal correspondence or, or you know, the, the jokes that grandma sends them, that there's actually something worth keeping safe, even in their own personal email and certainly in their, in their corporate email. Right.
2: Yeah. I think that studies like this do allow us to have guideposts that um, can help us make some adjustments uh, and then correlate that with some other information.
1: Whether it be the information that they handle? or the credentials that they're given to access the network, they have to understand what that value actually is. So a strong, obviously, security awareness program within a company, I think is is extremely important. I had a, uh, a story that I ran across, and I think this is probably one that anybody who pretty much t- turned on their machine in the last couple of days probably ran across, but mm-hmm. it's, a, uh, it's a new uh, vulnerability that was released Um, just actually yesterday on May 1st um, and uh, it's an Intel vulnerability Mm -hmm. that unfortunately has been around for about nine years now which you know usually when you hear that you know that there's there's problems. This particular one is specific to server class processors but a lot of machines, a lot of companies from small companies to large enterprises are using these Intel processors within their their servers. This is predominantly found in uh, Intel's vPro uh, um, set of uh, processors. Those are server processors. Server processes that. exactly. And, um, and and it's actually in a couple of it's in a couple of features within this remote management uh, feature. This Intel remote management feature. And and by the way, I don't, if I didn't mention it, it's a, it's a remote code execution. So you know, so, about as bad as it gets. Yeah, it's about as bad as it gets.
0: Someone could send the right, you know, attack traffic to it and control that machine. It's a big deal. This is a heck of a story, and this is some serious stuff. And it's basically an unprivileged,
1: um, oh wow, yeah. uh, remote attack yep. and and also a local attack. So the three components that are involved here um are the active management technology the small business technology and the intel standard manageability it allows a an administrator basically a a whole bunch of privileges for remotely administering Boxes in their enterprise environment. Okay, so it allows them to do a whole bunch of stuff like, you know, obviously like, you know push patches and uh, Change configurations remote and
0: power on power off remote
1: power on power off also troubleshooting So if your box goes sort of like hard down, you know blue screens or whatever you can still get onto the box mm-hmm. via this which is another sort of potential problem with this one as well, which is that when an attacker takes advantage of this vulnerability, this is wh- this is how I understand it works. Because of the way this works, the traffic on the wire actually never actually hits the OS. Yep, that sounds right. And Correct. so, right, so that's that's a problem that you basically are all of that traffic is basically hidden from the OS. So if you have anything on the on the OS that's looking
0: for this. If you have like a local IDS on the machine, it's probably not going to see it at that point. Anything that you would be doing within the OS to protect yourself against the general classes of attacks are going to be useless, right? You'd have to rely on network-based IDS to see the attacks coming in.
2: What is interesting though, is that it is gonna be spotty because apparently not uh, just having a vPro enabled CPU and chipset isn't really sufficient. Uh, also the, the vendors that built the system need to have licensed the AMT code uh, when they put together that box, so depending upon the brand of computer that you 're running, um, you may not be susceptible to the issue, whether it 's enabled or disabled because it may not have ever been licensed um, by the by the manufacturer for that particular chipset, which is why a lot of the com- commercial or consumer devices really aren 't um, expected to be vulnerable to this at this point uh, because they didn 't spend the money to license that uh, now for um, organizations or service providers who were using that technology to facilitate remote management of distributed platforms at the user level, you know, this could end up being, you know, a sizable distributed problem uh, in that case, right? Um, you know, it would basically be another, you know, kind of back channel access into, you know, any kind of remotely manageable home device, whether that's, you know, a DVR or whatever possible, if it's running the Intel chipset.
0: Yep. So, so I, I would expect to get bulletins from the major manufacturers in the next few days saying, this is what product lines are affected, this is what's not. Yeah. I and certainly it,
1: hope. Intel is basically set up, I think they've set up like four methods for figuring out whether or not your particular box actually is susceptible to this. Do I have actually this running and do I actually have the vulnerable version running? Because there are vulnerable versions, so the versions go anywhere from 6.x, all the way up to 11.6, so if you have something that's either earlier than 6 or later than 11.6, you're okay. Okay. Um, Also, it looks like Apple is not susceptible to this because they don't ship with this AMT.
0: Is there any evidence that someone was exploiting this bug in the wild either currently or historically? Because, you know, if someone knew about it, they could use it pretty much with abandon without anyone detecting it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and that's a great question. I mean, it's something that obviously now that this has come to light, I think, you know, prob- people are going to be looking for this and probably trying to go back to see whether or not there's any evidence of this. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two ports that this traditionally talks on. 16992 and 16993, which is where this uh, remote management happens. Mm-hmm. So you you can go out and look for, I think that's actually one of the methods for looking to see whether or not you've got this running, Sure. is to see if you've got traffic on these two ports. Um,
0: Although I did read the the SANS ISC article and they mentioned about six ports.
1: And I was going to mention that. So there, it looks like the list, so some of these initial stories only list two ports, but it
0: l- appears that there are there's an additional... Uh, set of ports. So it sounds like the the current fix for this is to disable the software within the operating system that allows the remote management. Right, We should break that ability to dive into the OS and make those sorts of changes.
2: One thing to also point out, though, is that this is a firmware update. So this isn't a software push. So even for people that have um, well functioning, you know, patching programs um, in place or patching. Um, you know procedures, they may not necessarily extend to firmware. Uh, and so I think that that may be another gap um, from an enterprise perspective when dealing with security maintenance and just general environment hygiene is diving down into that firmware layer as opposed to staying at the software layer.
0: There's software changes you can make within the OS to disable certain aspects of this, but it really is a firmware change. Now, most people will have a hard time acquiescing to this if their servers are in production. If you don't do a firmware update properly, if something happens, the power goes out, or something funny happens to the the firmware you're pushing, you brick the entire server. And I I can see why people might be hesitant to make that change, but it is a necessary one.
1: The good thing is, is that this is not on by default. The fix in this case is two things. It's not on by default, but if you somehow managed to turn it on but you're not using those features the quickest fix is obviously to turn it off And then on the other side if you're actually using it and you have to use
0: it then you have to then you have to patch This is great We've got things that we can do today to fix it I think it's issues like this that if I were involved in designing a network for the first time or even had the opportunity to rework an existing network I would be putting these sorts of remote management interfaces specifically on their own network and taking a look at my existing infrastructure and seeing if any of these things are erroneously exposed to the internet. Right. Because one you know small firewall change, you know, little mistake like that can take something you thought was on the inside, put it on the outside, and then you've got a remotely ex- exploitable yep. remote co- remote code execution facing the internet. Yeah. You're gonna have a bad time. Takeaway is if you manage a corporate network or anybody that uses the the corporate level Uh, Intel hardware, definitely start looking into this. You should really start looking into it yesterday. If you have the opportunity to mitigate before you patch, do that because people are looking for this bug and they will use it. They will gain control of your servers if you're not careful.
1: As soon as a vulnerability is, is released, the scanners come out. Either you have the good guys or the bad guys doing that scanning. The good guys are trying to figure out, do I have this stuff in my environment? The bad guys are out there trying to figure out who's got this stuff so I can see where I can get
0: my my claws into. Anytime there is a major new bug, it's worth tracking what sort of scanning volume you're seeing, who's interested in it. Hopefully, it's researchers trying to find and warn people that this is a problem. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes you've got people who are actively trying to exploit the bug. So anyway, I wanted to, before we got into the regular weather, I wanted to look at that Intel AMT bug that we discussed. There's been scanning for a while on port 623. I mean, that's the general used port for IPMI. So that's not really a surprise that there were a few spikes in the last seven days for that. Um, When you see in this last section here on the right is... You see a huge spike in port 16922, which was the first, first port that was reported you know, as the vulnerable one that most people were looking at. And you can see that was a it's a huge spike, went up to, it looks like 5,500,000. 16992. Yeah. 16992. So yep. definitely some interest in that, as well as a uh, small amount of interest in 16993, which was that secondary port that was mentioned in that report as well. Right. The rest of them really don't have any significant increase in the number of scan flows in that time period. We'll see how it goes from there. Uh, but it seems like most people are, are really focused on the two ports that were in the, I think the Intel reporting yeah, mentioned Intel, those two right. in particular.
1: Yeah, which makes sense, right? I mean, they're going to go after the ones that they know about, or at least the, the masses are going to.
0: Yep, I'm not sure it's going to have quite the volume that the IoT stuff have, because that's been dominating for, I want to say years at this oh, point. Yeah. Um, but I do want to follow that and see who else gets involved in scanning for it. Because it is such a critical bug and it's remotely exploitable, someone's going to want to take advantage of it.
1: Specifically, since we're talking about server enterprise class here, for the most part, although, you know, you will have small businesses with this this kind, these uh, machines within their environments, but I think the, the larger ones are going to be the ones that have the larger issue with them, right? Sure. So the whole patching and, and figuring out whether or not do I actually have these, and, and I guess the bigger question is, has somebody taken advantage of it right. while I wasn't looking? It's a very good question. Yeah. So, so I think you know, that, that graph there showing that scanning is, is indicative of the scanning that I think is going to continue to happen for people looking out there to see whether or not this is something that I can exploit. And then once I, once I do, what, what can I do with it?
0: Absolutely. So to take a look at the most probed ports, um, there are a few surprises in here that I thought were kind of interesting. 23 and 22, as usual, hold the top spot. 1433 MS SQL Server actually has an interesting spike and we can, we can see why that happened uh, later on. 7547 is that TR069 bug that we've been watching for a while. Uh, 3389 would be a remote desktop protocol. That one's gone up by four spots. Uh, 445 is, is SMB. 1911 is that Niagara Fox, Stuff of the Tritium, Niagara-AX, Tritium Fox protocol. Um, and that one's actually jumped up significantly, but there's a good explanation for that as well. Right. we will see that in a second. So after uh, that Tritium-AX stuff, we have port 1900 UDP, which is simple service discovery protocol. And as we know, that's commonly used for reflective denial of service attacks. So usually the reason people were scanning for that is to start building a list of those servers they can bounce traffic off of for both reflection and amplification of traffic. Yep. And 5358 is actually kind of interesting. That was the Hajime um, scanning that we saw before. I actually reached out to the the person from Radware who was doing that article. He explained that that port is actually kind of interesting and it was actually being used for exploitation. I think we had made an assumption it was some sort of Windows-specific port back in the day, but it it turns out that that was actually an exploitation method. So Mm. interesting stuff. Uh, Most sources probing, 23 is still at the top, 7547 is in second. That's probably due to Mirai activities or Mirai clones. The amount of ICMP is kind of interesting. Maybe there was a a major internet event that we should be aware of. I know there was there was some BGP hijacking that took place in this past week. It was kind of interesting. A bunch of um, let's just say financial services were routed through Rust Telecom. And there's no real explanation for that as of right now. If someone tries to connect to a server, the server may return back instead of a like a closed session, like you can't connect here, they may return something back like an ICMP error message. This host couldn't be found. This network couldn't be routed to things like that. So it gives you an idea of the, the status of, of the internet itself in some cases. 3.3 ICMP, is um, that's a, an error code ICMP type for uh, destination not found, I think. It's very, very spiky in here. And right now I think mostly that's going to be backscatter from various internet events. That's not going to be any real scanning. It could be a backscatter from a DDoS attack. Sometimes you can start seeing ICMP messages coming back as responses. The more of them you see in a certain category, you might say, well, there's there's something interesting going on here. Maybe in a network line got cut somewhere and there's no longer a physical route to a certain host. Maybe I want to know about that. Maybe it means someone's made a change to the network that wasn't authorized. You know? So there's all sorts of things you can dig into. In this case, I think it's probably backscattered from a DDoS attack. This is the Niagara AX that we were talking about, and uh, you know, it was sort of surprising to see it jump so many spots, but I think what we, we did is when we were doing the analysis, we caught it in the, the, the middle of a, uh, a known scanner doing the activity. This, the second place, you can see mostly these are our daily scans, these huge spikes that go up to around 260 scan sips per hour but you see these tiny MESAs down by the bottom that maybe max out around 15 to 20 sources, and that's a handful of Chinese IPs responsible for what's more of a a weekly activity. So somebody out there is trying to, I guess, take an inventory of devices. Definitely more than one group, Uh, but they seem to be doing it on different time schedules to update that database. So John Hogeboom actually tipped me onto this one. There was a, a botnet that was scanning on port 81 for a couple of, maybe about the span of a week or two. And this was another one of those IoT botnets. I think it was a very specific set of webcams that were vulnerable to this.
1: Right. We were actually able to see sort of the rise and fall of this particular botnet. A really quick, you know, here's the botnet, here's its life, and here's its sort of sort of death. We, you know, we won't call it completely dead, but but it's
0: sort of on its way out. Uh, Pierre Kim, who's a pretty well known researcher, had done research on this this family, found the vulnerability, and somebody else. I guess, weaponized it. But you can see the rise and fall of this botnet, which yeah. is pretty interesting. I mean, within, I would say, so that's probably the 16th, by the, the 25th, the C2 domains, there were two of them, two .IR domains were sink-hold, yep. uh, and now they port to, point to 10.40.40.40, which isn't going to be internet routable. Uh, but it's it's kind of an interesting way to capture the life and times of a single botnet by its scanning activity. Yeah, pretty know, neat. It's an interesting graph. Yeah. Uh, So 1433 definitely had uh, an uptick or starting around the 25th and then come not quite back down to its previous levels by now. Uh, I don't actually have an explanation for this one. I didn't get a chance to pull the sources, Uh, but it does seem to be a single botnet or a single set of sources behind all of this. The volume of that that uptick is pretty significant. And good old telnet I figured we included again for completeness. You can see that it hasn't changed all that much. There's still a ton of scanning. Um, in terms of the sor- scan sources per hour here. Maybe a little bit trailing off in the last two weeks, but still still king at, at first place, so.
1: Yeah, yep.
0: That's all of it. We had an interesting mix of stories this week, but the Intel AMT one, I think, is one that people should really pay attention to. This is the critical bug for this week, in my opinion, and um, people should really take heed and, and, and go out and do what needs to get done.
1: We have a pretty good visibility with the at and network. We're able to equate very quickly stories that come out about either vulnerabilities, new malware, new botnets, and start looking at it from a, from a holistic internet perspective
0: The views expressed on at and Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.